Hey there, Cross Connection. Pastor Jason here. I am not Miles, as you can tell. I'm the Family Ministries Pastor here at Cross Connection Church, and this week we are looking at Nehemiah chapter 10. So if you want to turn your Bible there, we will get started in just a moment. Let's pray as we get there. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that we have to, to learn from it and grow. Pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us wisdom and discernment. Lord, that you would help us to glorify you as we look at this and as we look at ourselves, Lord God, and as we notice the uh, comparisons and contrasts that we see from your text and in our hearts, Lord. So help us to be uh, unflinching as we look at both of those things, as the, at the text and at our hearts, and help us to grow closer to you. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 10. Um, we covered in, uh, last, chapter 9 last week, and chapter 9 was an interesting chapter because they looked, at, there was like a praise and prayer walk through the history of the children of Israel. So they had, in chapter 8, celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, and then chapter 9, they went through like a, almost like an overview of the history of the children of Israel, focusing on captivity and the Israelites' actions and uh, you know, what they did to place themselves in captivity. And we saw that God was using their captivity over and over and over to turn the hearts of his people back to him because they had strayed, they'd forgotten him, times got good, they forgot all about God and they started doing all kinds of horrible things. And then they were brought into captivity. They cried out to God, they drew close to him again. God rescued them, things got good, they forgot about God. There's a cycle that played out over and over and over. So. That was chapter 9, the very end of chapter 9, the last verse, which we did not cover because actually it fits much better into chapter 10 here. It says in chapter 9, verse 38, in view of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. Those whose seals were on the document were the governor Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, and then there's 84 other people that are on that list. Um, we're not going to cover all those people. But it's interesting that they say, in view of this, in view of the history that we've had, we are making a binding agreement. In light of all that we've learned about our ancestors' inability to keep their vows and promises, we're going to make a promise and a vow. But this time we'll sign it and we'll make it official. That way we won't break it, right? See, we run into here and we look at see the children of Israel go through this. It's the dilemma of broken people and broken vows. We are broken people. We, we want the solemnity. We want the perceived power of a strong agreement. But see, broken people, we create broken promises. And the question that we sometimes have, are we more likely to keep solemn vows versus just a normal decision? You know, so Webster's, where I went to to check, <laughs> defines a vow as a solemn promise or assertion, specifically one by which a person is bound to an act a service or a condition. It's a solemn promise or an assertion where somebody is bound to an act, a service, or a condition. So that's the, the binding there of the vow. Um, in the Bible, it's generally a conscious, deliberate promise to do something, sometimes conditioned by an if. Like, if I break it, then X happens. Um, so the elements of a vow that we see in Scripture, there's generally a penalty for breaking the vow, um, there's the implied ability to perform the vow. Like you can't vow something that you can't do. Like I vow I shall fly. And it's like, that's not going to happen. There has to be at least the implication that you can do this thing. So there's the applied ability to perform. 
there's a verbal assent. There's a yes, I will do this. Much like when we have a when we have a wedding, the requirements to have to have a marriage ceremony, to fulfill the requirements of the marriage vow is you have to have a the question, do you want to get married? The verbal assent, I do, and a witness. Those three things. That's really all you need. You don't need dresses and cakes and crowds and organs and music and doves. You don't need any of those things. You know those three things. You need the question. You need the answer, and you need somebody to witness it. When you have that, boom, you're covered. All the rest of it is like icing on the cake, if you'll pardon the pun there. Um, so elements of a vow we see in Scripture, penalty for breaking, the implied ability to perform it, verbal assent, and the fact that it's witnessed by others. So what situations do we run into that require a vow? Um, situations generally have to be important. You don't take a, I vow to take out the trash. No, we, we don't generally do that. We say, I'm going to take the trash out. I mean, I guess if you're having serious problems with the trash, you might need to take a vow. But um, the generally is a situation that's important, that has also lots of public scrutiny, something that's going to be visible to other people. Uh, sometimes we require a vow when there's a lack of trust. And also, when there's something that has a responsibility or a you know, something that could fall into recourse, something that would require a seriousness. Um, and generally, we see in our own lives, the more paperwork, the more the risk is involved, either because of the value of the vow or because of the perception of the person making the vow after all. Because a vow is only as good as the person making the vow. Now, if you've ever purchased a house, you see the amount of paperwork that's involved. You have promissory notes. You have this. You have that. You have all these different things. And you sign your name like 142 times. So, of course, with that much paperwork and with that many promises, nobody has ever defaulted on a home loan, right? Oh. Anybody remember 2008 where people were walking away from homes like crazy after the crash? Yeah, we, we see that the, the vow is only as good as the people that are making the vow. And sometimes conditions change. So here, back in our chapter that we're looking at, in chapter 10, who is making this vow? Well, verse, when we jump down to 28, because we're skipping all the different names, we see the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, signers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who had separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses right there. So who do we have? We have all of those people, everybody that's there. Um, the phrase that really stuck out to me, everyone who is able to understand. So it's all those that are present and that are qualified to make the vow. They understand it. Yes, I get it. Now, what do they vow there? To follow the law of God through God's servant Moses and to obey all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our God. So their vow is to follow the law, obey the commands and the ordinances and the statutes of God. Okay, so um, what are the chances they can pull this thing off? Well, in the last chapter, they recounted five specific instances that the children of Israel broke their previous covenants or vows. So it's not really looking that good, right? Like you went through five specific, and then it's also said, and many other times. So the thing that we've seen is that over and over and over and over and over, they have broken that vow. Um, we'll look more on that later. Specifically, once you get to chapter 13, it's going to become abundantly clear how well this goes. Back into our chapter here. In verse 30, we get to the details of the vow. The elements of the law, commands, ordinances, and statutes that they considered important enough to single out 
of all those things. First one, verse 30, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. So they specifically start out talking about intermarrying with the pagan tribes around them. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 15, it says, do not make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land or else when they prostitute themselves with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. Then you will take some of their daughters as brides for your sons and their daughters will prostitute themselves with their gods and cause your sons to prostitute themselves with their gods. So that we see the warning to the children of Israel all the way back in Exodus is that if you're going to marry into pagan peoples, that your sons and daughters are going to end up turning away and selling themselves into the service of foreign gods. It's a really good thing that in our modern times, we don't have to worry about any foreign gods, right? Like nobody's going door to door saying, hey, um, so we got this bail and it'd be cool if you really would. Find no, we don't have that as much. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? See, the principle still stands. If we join to someone with different beliefs, different morals and different goals, we're going to be moved from our beliefs and morals and goals. So relationships are hard enough, we can see, between believers. But what happens when we have somebody like they have different beliefs, different morals, different goals, and then we have ours and we compromise? What do we do? We still move closer together and further away from where we started. So even small compromises over time make massive changes. So things we may not think that we would ever do, if you give it enough time when you're yoked together with an unbeliever and you're making compromises, yeah, maybe we won't go, maybe we'll go to church every other week. Maybe go, we'll go to work church um, once a month, but we'll bring the kids, make sure they get to Sunday school. Maybe we'll, and pretty soon, all of a sudden, you're so far away from where you started and you're like, how did I get here? Small compromises make massive changes over time question I had for you. We're not going to have points so much in this message as we're going to have some questions to look at. So the question I have right now, first question in your outline, if you're taking notes, where am I friends with an enemy of God? Where am I tied with somebody who's an enemy of God? Well, follow up question to that. What are the things that God hates that I don't? See, that's a scary thing. When I find out that God hates something and yet I find either through my words or through my actions, I don't hate that thing as much as God does. There's a list of things that God hates. What happens if all of a sudden I'm friendly with one of those things? Things are going to change in my life and not for the better. So the question, where are my friends with an enemy of God? But also, if you look at this, this aspect here, when it talks about, your sons and your daughters, there's a parenting aspect to this also. Because there's nothing more important and long-lasting as our descendants. My house, doesn't matter how great my house is, at some point it's going to fall to ruin. But most likely, my children and their children and their children's children and their children's children after that, they're going to be going strong. That's going to be the most long-lasting thing that I can be a part of. Am I training my children in those ways? Am I training my children that, like it says in James chapter 4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. 
Are we training our children that if you're friendly with the world, that puts you in a position of enemy with God? Are we teaching them that compromises with the world is acceptable in some cases? Now, we're probably not going to say that to them, but are we showing them that through our actions? And some of the, the places that I was looking at, even in my own life and experience and things like that, um, many of you know I was a youth pastor for just north of 20 years. Two decades, that's a long time to watch changes in a society. When I started out in youth ministry, Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights were like holy days. Schools did not schedule practices on those days because Sundays was church and Wednesday night was youth group. Those days were kept apart. It doesn't matter if you were on the football team, the volleyball team, whatever, that Wednesday night, Sunday morning, those were sacred. Now, if you look around, that's not the same way anymore. We practice for school sports five nights a week. Sunday mornings, there's all kinds of travel ball and things like that. Many of you guys, some of you guys may even be involved in that where all of a sudden, yeah, well, you know, we just couldn't make it to church this week because, you know, we had this game. And then next week it's another game. And then we had a tournament. And then we had another tournament. And then we had another tournament. And all of a sudden, what have we taught our kids? We've taught our kids that, you know, for really good reasons, we don't have to gather together with the body of Christ because, you know, we had, you know, 10-year-olds playing soccer. Really? Is that the message we want to teach? What about the media that we engage in? The music, the movies, the television shows, the things like that. What are we teaching them through what we're watching? And what are we teaching them through how we handle money? Because all of these things preach to our kids. So question two that I wanted to have you guys think about, if you're writing these down, this is question two. Does my parenting reflect my stated beliefs? Now, if you have kids, this question is probably going to be painful. Um, if you don't have kids, you're going to probably read this question and go, oh, of course, I will always do that, you know, before you have kids. Um, once you have kids, you learn a lot. Your, your, <laughs> your field of vision expands, as it were, and all of a sudden you realize, I don't know as much about parenting as I thought I knew before I had any kids. So just remember this in the back of your mind. If you don't have kids, you know, write it down, save it for later. When you do have kids, you look at it and go, oh, this is more painful. All right. So, does my parenting reflect my stated beliefs? It was important enough for them to write it out in their contract and sign their names and all the other 85 names that were on that thing. It's all there, witnessed, sealed, signed, everything. It was point enough, important enough for them to put it there. That's why we're covering it. Now, the next point that they put in there, in verse 31, when the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. So here we're starting to talk about buying and selling on the Sabbath. We already touched on youth sports, you know, happening on Sundays and happening on Wednesday nights. But what else has changed in our culture about the Sabbath day? I went to school in a little town called Sioux Center, Iowa. It's in the northwest corner. I went to college there, northwest corner of Iowa, not close to anything or anybody. The closest thing that anybody would know about is uh, Sioux Falls, and it was an hour away. So, Iowa, was it, it was the early 90s. There was only one place that was open to buy gas on a Sunday, 
and it was outside of town. It was not the one in town. You had to go slightly outside the town limits to buy gas. Restaurants weren't open. Sundays, you did not go out and go shopping. And if you did, people could see because they'd be on their way to church. And there your car is over there filling up with gas on the one outside of town on a Sunday. Not keeping the Sabbath. Now, am I saying that's right? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. The Sabbath means different things. So we're going to get into that. But all I know is then, if you didn't keep it, it was evident to people and people watch it. But we have to look at what is the Sabbath? What does the Sabbath actually mean? Well, the Sabbath was modeled by God during creation. One day out of seven, he rested. And for us, it's, for in the Old Testament, it was a day of rest, a day of reflection. There was no work beyond what was necessary to survive. It was meant to be a blessing. It was meant to point the people towards the rest found specifically through the incarnation of Jesus. But what did it become? See, over time, it changed from a day of rest and it became a burden. It became a complication. It became a distraction. It became a way of crushing sinners and elevating the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees got involved. And a lot of this, some scholars trace all the way back to right here in Nehemiah, where they make this vow and they're like, okay, so they're going to stick to this and they're going to hold on to this. And the Pharisees, they loved keeping vows. They loved, they would, we're going to get into it. So anyway, they had specific Sabbath day's distance. It was the amount of, of, of distance you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath where one step further was work. But this far was not work. And so they set up boundaries around the city. But just because we're human and we always try to figure out a way around any sort of boundary we have, they decided that anywhere you eat is your home. So if you carried a lunch, you could walk to where they had the marker for this is a Sabbath day's journey and you could sit down and you could eat something. And now that was my home. I can now walk another Sabbath day's distance because I'm not breaking the law because this now became my home because I ate there. So now I can move further. And they found ways around that kind of thing. Um, modern times, we still see this in Orthodox Jewish um, circles. I was watching Property Brothers. Some of you guys may have seen that. This was quite a while ago. You know, it's the, uh, the, the two big tall guys and the one guy pretends to be a real estate agent and the other guy pretends to fix houses and you're kind of not quite sure if they're actually doing either one of those things. Anyway, I'm watching it and they're um, remodeling and selling this house and this house has two complete kitchens. And I thought, wow, that must be a duplex. No. It's an Orthodox Jewish home where one kitchen is always kosher and one kitchen, it's not that big a deal. So it's okay if we don't eat kosher sometimes, but when we're going to, when we're going to on the holidays and we're going to do on the feast days, we're only going to cook in the other kitchen because somehow that kitchen is holy and this kitchen isn't because we've never made cheeseburgers in this one, but we did make cheeseburgers in this one because you can't have cheeseburgers and be an Orthodox Jew because there's uh, a rule in the Bible about boiling a calf in its mother's milk. And somehow that gets extrapolated to milk, to cheese, to burgers and cheese and cheese on the burger. And you can't do that because otherwise that would be unholy. So you got to build two kitchens. So when you are unholy, you're not unholy in the holy kitchen and you can only be unholy in the unholy kitchen, but on holy days, you have to use the holy kitchen to cook holy food. Do you see how the Sabbath becomes something that's just crushing? This is no longer rest. This is now 55 things I have to think of in order to make sure I'm not breaking the Sabbath. When the Sabbath was meant 
to provide a time of rest, a time of focus on God, a time to find rest and rejuvenation in the arms of our Savior. But the Pharisees loved it because it made them look good and they could crush other people with their, their weights. Um, it completely left the original intent and what God meant to be a comfort and a blessing became a way for leaders to dominate God's people. Well, we see New Testament, Jesus is the Sabbath. He is our rest. So what does that mean for us as Christians? Well, the purpose of the Sabbath was to point to Jesus. But the procedure from the Old Testament is still important. It's to maintain the connection, to obtain rest in our Savior. We need to set time apart. We need to set a sacrifice, as it were, in our schedules. We need to protect those things. We have schedules. All of us have things that are going on in our lives. If we don't set time for what's important, those important things don't happen. And they get eaten up by the things that we need to do instead of the things that we should do. So set a time in your schedule to sacrifice that time. And this is the time that I am spending with the Lord. One day out of seven, that's the model that was given to us. It's a great one to use. Now, does that mean we always have that one day out of seven? No, sometimes things happen and we don't. But it's important enough that we should and we need to get to that. If we want to live as we're called as Christians, we need to build in Jesus rest time. We can quickly burn ourselves out or burn down the people around us if we don't make time to rest in Jesus. And we see the effects of not taking a Sabbath rest. We see ourselves getting short-termed, or maybe it's not, maybe it's, you know, too difficult to look at us. We can look at other people and see where they're getting short-tempered and smart-mouthed and worn out and dejected and depressed and becoming numb to our needs and the needs of the others. Um, it's especially hard because we live in a culture that values work. Our culture loves work. It loves the grind. It loves the hustle. We're, we're going to get that. We're going to work hard and we're going to do whatever it takes. And kind of rest is kind of for the week. And then when we see a snap back against that, um, you know, when people are starting to face burnout, then our culture cries out for self-care. But see, the self-care that our culture cries out for is selfish care. It's like, oh, I just need to spend time with me and think about me and make sure my needs are met. So stop bothering me. It's me time. And it's, it's not the Sabbath. That's not resting in Jesus, but it's pampering our flesh, which drives us further away from what we truly need. We need to set time to be in commune and communion with our Savior. Whether it's hiking, whether it's Sunday going to church and sharing a meal with your family, maybe it's, you know, whatever. But you have to find that time and you have to protect that time. And we need to make sure that we don't turn Jesus into an excuse to overwork because that will turn us pharisaical in a heartbeat. If all of a sudden it's like, well, no, Jesus is requiring this work for me. Jesus is requiring me to do this. And this happens a lot of times to people in ministry where it's like, no, the, what I'm doing is so important. It's so much more important than the rest. And it's like, well, the rest is a commandment. Like it's more important than a commandment. Oh, no, you don't understand. It's really like, no, no, no. Brother, sister, stop. Rest. God rested during creation and that wasn't hard for him. Creation was just him speaking. Our stuff that we do is difficult. It's taxing. It, the world drags us constantly away from our Savior. Spend the time. Point three in your outline, the question that we're going to look that I want you guys to think about. How am I finding Sabbath rest? How am I finding that? Because if you don't find it, if you don't look for it, 
you won't find it. And if you don't find it, it'll find you. The need will find you. And then it's going to be catastrophic many times. All right, so the next point in their vow that they call out specifically, they say, we will impose the following commands on ourselves to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly to the service of the house of the Lord our God, the bread displayed before the, the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We have cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our Lord's house to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We will bring the first fruits of our land and of our fruit tree, the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring, and they go through a whole bunch of different things that they're listing. Uh, firstborn from their livestock, firstborn from their children, firstborn of our herds, flocks, and they go through this whole list of all the different things that they're gonna do. We're gonna bring the first fruits of our grain, everything that we produce, we're gonna bring those, and then we're gonna set up a schedule here in verses like 38, 39, where people are going to be in charge of making sure these things are brought into the temple, that, are, that those things are given because it's important, which is everybody's favorite topic, right? Tithing. Hey, hey, tithing. Ooh, I didn't know I was getting a tithing message today. It's in the text. You're getting a tithing message. Sorry. Um, you know, try not to think about it as such. Come along with me. This section lists 10 different offerings from silver to grain to bread to wine to oil. All these different things. 10 different offerings. Sundays, we generally do one offering. So, you know, you already feel like you're, uh, you know, 10 times ahead or behind. I don't know. But see, we, in our current you know, culture, we tend to reduce tithing or offerings to just money. Like that's the only thing that we have to offer, that all we are is just like a money farm, which is so ridiculous because your time and your talents are so much more valuable than money. God has infinite money resources. And right now, you know, some people are like, oh, I don't need to give. No, you still need to give because God calls us to do that. And we're going to cover that in a little bit. But it's not just money. Are you tithing or giving out of your time, out of your talents, and not just your treasure? Because after an outside of the, those offerings, it also talks about a tenth of all that their land produces. This is after listing those ten different offerings. And this is where some people go, well, you know, that's Old Covenant. Tithing is not something we have to do as Christians because that was the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We're not required to tithe. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, guess what? Paul talks about this. Lots of, lots of people in the New Testament talk about it. Jesus talks about money quite a bit in the New Testament. So if this is your thought, hold on. Um, try not to be too upset, but realize that, well, we'll get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 to 15, there's a section there. If you want to read it later, go for it. It teaches us that God loves a cheerful giver. We know that passage. God loves a cheerful giver. And that what we give is very much related to what we receive. So those two things are connected. This is New Testament. This is Paul talking about. You want to receive? Then give. Now, this is very easy to fall into the whole, like, name it and claim it. And you give seed money. And, you know, I still remember getting a, uh, a flyer from... Uh, 
Boy, I can't. Oh, Pastor Ike. That was it was. Reverend Ike. Sorry, not Pastor. Reverend Ike. And he sent me a Power of God cross in the mail. It's his little paper cross. And if I wrapped money around that and I put it under my pillow and I slept on it and then I sent it to him, then God would miraculously give me all kinds of money and I would be rich. And he uses this verse out of context and, you know, treats it terribly to try to make money off of me. That's not what it's about. It's about an offering to God. What you give to God, he's going to give back more than you can imagine. And he says that several different places in scripture. Matthew chapter six, verse 19 says, it tells us that our treasure should be stored in heaven, not on earth. And that what we treasure is what our heart values. We don't treasure what our heart values. Our heart values what we make our treasure. Another thought for parents, grandparents, people who may potentially at some point be parents, grandparents, people who have been parents, grandparents, is your greatest treasure going to be in heaven? When I became a grandparent, my whole perspective changed. All of a sudden I was like looking at grandpa perspective where when I was raising my kids, that was kind of an all encompassing thing. Like that was like what I thought about was, oh my goodness, raising my kids. And it almost like, you know, that's all you can kind of see sometimes in that. But then when I had a granddaughter, all of a sudden, I'm thinking further on down the line, like what, what can I do for my granddaughter? What can I do to make sure that she walks with Jesus? Because that's where my treasure is. My treasure is my children and my grandkids. What can I do to make sure that my greatest treasure is going to be in heaven? Parents, grandparents, the job that we do is so vitally important. Don't, don't get distracted by all the other things that come up. If our kids and our grandkids are walking with Jesus, think of the effect that's going to have over time. Right now, I'm one person that's following Jesus with a wife who's following Jesus, and we have raised five kids that are following Jesus. What happens when those five kids have, God willing, several kids at each, and all of a sudden, it's like this massive Holy Spirit pyramid scheme that's gonna change the world. But only if we can do our part. My, I need to ensure that my greatest treasure is gonna be in heaven with me. Also talking about in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, easy to remember, 23, 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness while also meticulously tithing on all their produce. He talks about them going through and tithing on particular seeds. Like you have like my mint seed, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and one for God. They spent their time being so focused that their tithe was perfect, that they neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus doesn't instruct them not to tithe. That's important. But he rebukes them for neglecting all the other things. It's not just enough to plunk your money down and that's, you know, that covers it. We're also held responsible for justice and mercy and faithfulness. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44, Jesus points out that the value of the gift was not the amount. This was the story of the, the, as they're sitting outside the temple and they have the big metal horn where people would drop their offering and people would come by and clang, 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 and they're throwing their, their metal coins into a metal horn and the offering is loud. And then there's this one old widow and she drops in a portion of a coin and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. Did you see what just happened there? And they're like probably thinking, whoa, did somebody try to take something out? Like, no, no, no. She gave everything she had. 
And Jesus commended her for that. So Jesus commends her because she gave everything. It's not about how much you gave. It's about how much you have to give and the correlation there. So point four or question four that I want you to write down and think about. What treasure am I cheerfully giving to God and what treasures am I hiding from him? What things am I easily giving away? Like it's so easy to give this, but it's really hard to give. Maybe it's really hard for me to give up my time. Maybe it's really hard for me to, to, to give money. Maybe that's my, whatever your hangup is, God will be faithful. If you ask him, hey, what am I hiding from you? He's faithful to tell us. We have to be willing to ask the question though. So here we are. The children of Israel have made a covenantal vow with God. Will they keep it? No, no. We don't even make it out of the last couple of chapters here of Nehemiah before the Levites have gone home. The enemies of God are living in the temple. Trade is happening on the Sabbath and the people are no longer bringing in their promised offerings. And it is a mess. They were so completely screwed up and Nehemiah was gone for their guessing about 10 years. In 10 years, everything that they had vowed to do, gone. All the, diff all the specific vows that they made are just gone. They're, they've left. They're no longer even trying to keep those. Well, it's a good thing that we do so much better, right? Oops. So if we're people who cannot keep our vows, why do we even bother making them? Is there a point to making a promise to be faithful when we know that on some level we're all faithless? What does God want from us in all of this? We're going to look at some passages here. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 4 and 6 says, When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? So we see there he says, if you make a vow, don't delay in fulfilling it. Do what you said you're going to do. But he says, it's better not to vow than to vow and not fulfill it. So be careful. Let your words be few. Don't go in and like, well, I swear to God I'm going to. Like, well, no, no, no. Don't swear to God you're going to. Just say, I think I'm going to try this, or I'm going to do that. I'm going to, you know, don't make unnecessary vows. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, if you make a vow, keep your vow. Deuteronomy in chapter 23, verses 21 to 23, says, if you make a vow to God, do it. Don't be slow to keep it. Keep it in a hurry because you require it. But verse 22 says, but if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as sin. Like you're not going to be in trouble for not making a vow. So don't make unnecessary promises. Don't make promises that you can't keep. And don't, husbands, I know sometimes we do this. I see this in myself. Maybe I shouldn't include everybody else. Maybe I should just be willing to absorb this myself. I have a tendency to tell my wife yes on things that realistically I have no intention or no ability to do sometimes. We really need to work on, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'll, do, I'll take care of that. When in reality... If I sat down and think about it, I would probably go, I have no possibility of me actually doing that. But rather than admit that to my wife and damage my pride, it's like, oh, no, no, yeah, well, I'll, I'll take care of that. 
Or I know I don't want to take care of that, but I'll say it just because I don't want to have the argument. Sweetie, forgive me. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. Don't make vows you don't intend to keep. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself says, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or his footstool. Let your yes be yes. Let your no mean no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. He says, just make your yeses, yeses, and your noes, noes. Leviticus, this is an interesting one. This is what uh, one that I struck out to me here. Leviticus chapter 5, he talks about if you make a vow and recognize that you can't keep it. He says, if someone incurs guilt in these cases, he is to confess that he has committed that sin. You are to confess. If you've taken a vow that you know you cannot follow through on, go and say that. You know, sweetie, I said I was going to do that. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I have not done that. I am sorry. Forgive me. And then it talks about in that same passage in Leviticus 5, making a sin offering, making a guilt offering. So what's the point of making vows if we know that we're not capable of perfectly keeping vows? Well, our society is built on trust. Our relationships to each other is built on trust. Our relationship with God is built on trust. We trust that he is going to be faithful even when we cannot be perfectly faithful. But there is a value to a vow. It creates a bond of trust. Trust that can be damaged when it's broken, absolutely. But without that level of trust, what do we see? Look at the, the most typical vow that we are going to take as people. Most, the most typical vow that most people are going to take is a wedding vow. I vow to love, honor, and cherish, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. Are we going to love perfectly? No. Are we going to cherish perfectly? No. Are we going to honor perfectly? No. But it gives us the aim. It gives us the goal. It gives us fences, as it were, to keep us focused. Look at the difference between relationships built on a vow and relationships without a vow. Look at the health of the people involved. Married couples tend to live longer. The, the relationship is deeper because there's an expectation of stability and of permanence. Just not vowing anything, it's not a good way to live. But excessively vowing all the time, no, don't do that. Make your promises, keep your promises. That great prophet of old, Turbo Man, in Jingle All the Way, reminded us that always keep your promises if you want to keep your friends. If you make a vow, stick to it. All right, so back into Nehemiah chapter 10, they finish this out saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. That's the very last thing. We're not going to neglect the house of our God. See, they recognized that the presence of God was vital for their people. And without him, they were going to be captured and enslaved. So 1 Corinthians, let's look at this. In chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, it says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. See, they were not going to neglect the house of the Lord, which was the temple, because they knew that that presence 
was important. That was what kept them going. That was where their provision, their protection, their guidance all came from that. Well, do you not know that your body, my body, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who we've got from God who's been given to us? Then how, I need to glorify God with my body. How have we neglected the house of God? Is there some portion of our temple that needs to be renovated? This is the final question here that we're going to look at. We're not going to talk a lot about it because this is one I want you to take with you and marinate on. So write this down, memorize it, maybe put it in your phone, maybe, you know, email it to yourself so you see it on Monday. Question five, final question here, where am I neglecting the house of the Lord? And when I find neglect in the house of the Lord, what do I need to do? And for me, it helped to look at it like a physical house. When there's a problem with your house, you need to fix it. You need to be ruthless in some cases. So pretend, you know, for the sake of argument, that the temple of the Holy Spirit is as important to us as our own physical houses. Because I can tell you, as a person that's had three different slab leaks in our house, when I'm walking and a piece of tile feels warm, it gets my attention because I know what, it, what, a, what a problem this is. I know what it's like to have to break up not just the tile in the bathroom, but the foundation and dig down and find the pipe and replace the pipe and hearing the insurance companies going, yeah, we're not going to cover this again. We're only going to cover a percentage of it. And then you're kind of stuck going, wait a minute, why do I pay for my homeowner's insurance then if you guys aren't going to help me out here? And then all of a sudden they're talking about having to repipe and going through the ceiling and no longer. And then it's like, but we have a kitchen island with a sink. How are we going to do that? Well, uh, oh. We need to be ruthless in taking care of our own houses. If there's a slab leak, we fix it. If there's a roof leak, we fix it. If there's something structural, if there's termites, we tent the thing and we poison everything that's not good in there. Brothers and sisters, we need to be that ruthless with the temple of the Holy Spirit that's within us. If there are things that are in there, and there are, there are in you and there are in me, we need to be ruthless with those things. We need to ask God, where am I neglecting your temple, Lord? What, what am I doing? What is going on in my heart, in my mind that needs to stop? And then we need to take the steps to fix it. And if we can't fix it ourselves, like many of the things in our homes, I don't play very much with plumbing. And I don't play very much with electricity because both of those things, I don't know what I'm doing. I cause more trouble. Then I need to call somebody. If there are things going on in your life that you can't seem to get a hold of, get help. Get in touch with somebody. Get a strong brother or sister with you to walk with you through this. But you got to be ruthless. Because if we allow those things to fester in the temple, bad things are going to happen. And I'm going to give you a preview real quick here of what we're going to find in chapter 13. Nehemiah goes away for a while and he comes back and he walks in and the people are buying and selling on a Sunday. And the same people that he threw out before and said, don't come here and sell things on Sunday, they're back. And the people are buying and selling. And as he goes into the temple, he finds that Tobiah, that we got rid of many chapters ago, is living in the storehouse in the temple. So Tobiah has now taken up residence in the temple. And he's living there. He's living in the storerooms. The storerooms where all the offerings of the people were coming in to take care of the Levites and those who were serving at the temple who were performing the sacrifices that people were getting atonement for, 
Well, the Levites don't have any provision because Tobiah is living in the place where they were supposed to store those things for them. So they've gone home. They've left Jerusalem. They've gone back to their cities where they're now farming and raising crops and shepherding and things like that because they needed to survive. And the provision wasn't there for them. The people are no longer able to bring their offerings the same way. They can't go and they can't find atonement the same way because the Levites aren't there to perform the sacrifices because there's somebody in the temple who shouldn't have been there. And because the Levites aren't there to warn the people, the people are buying and selling on Sunday. They're committing iniquities. They're breaking their vow. And there's nobody there to remind them, hey, you're not supposed to do this. All goes back to the decision by the high priest to allow Tobiah to live there because they had some connection. They had some fellowship between light and darkness that allowed Tobiah to be in the temple, which displaced the food for the Levites, which displaced the Levites, so the Levites are home. The people do not have somebody to offer sacrifice or to remind them of their promises, and the people are committing iniquities. And all of this goes back to the one thing, that there was somebody in the house of the Lord that didn't belong there. If we allow that in our own lives, all this, this, uh, this cascade effect that Pastor Nick and I were talking about happens and all of a sudden all of this keeps happening and one flows to the next and flows to the next and flows to the next and what didn't seem like a big deal I'm sure at the beginning became a huge deal at the end. Be ruthless about what is in the temple because out of that is going to flow everything else. So that last question once again, where am I neglecting the house of the Lord? Christian, I pray that you will make this your prayer and that when God answers it, that you'll be ruthless in fixing it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would reveal to us where we're neglecting the house of the Lord. Where are things going on that shouldn't be going on? Where are things that we're allowing in there that shouldn't be in there? Father God, help us to identify those things and then, Lord, to fix those things. Help us to confess it to you, to give it to you, to take the safeguards, Lord God, to protect ourselves from it coming back. Forgive us, Father God, where we have fallen short, where we've allowed those things to come live in the temple. Lord, I pray that, uh, that as you are faithful to reveal those things to us, Lord, that you will provide the comfort and the strength and the motivation, Lord Jesus, for us to deal with it. And Lord, if it's too much for us, help us to have the, the courage and the humility to reach out and ask for help. Whether it's just asking somebody to pray for us, whether it's filling out a prayer card and asking the prayer team to pray for us, whether it's coming and looking to somebody to give us counsel on how to deal with situations. Lord, help us to be those that are not so prideful that we can't address what's going on. So Father God, be glorified in your people. Thank you so much that you will make your home within us, that Holy Spirit, that you will live in our hearts. What an amazing thing that is. So Father God, help us to remember that. Help us to realize how holy that is and help us to treat it that way. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Forgive us where we fall short. Strengthen us while we're doing well. And thank you, Lord, that we can find our rest in you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.
God bless you guys. I know sometimes this can seem heavy, but remember the things that were all tied together here, Sabbath, sacrifice, and the temple, all of those things will work together in our lives. They will give us joy. They will give us strength. They will, all kinds of good things flow out of that if we keep them all in the right order. So I pray that as you ask these questions to yourself again, that those will help you to, to get those things in order. God bless you guys. Love you. Have a great week. <laughs>